So for the next few weeks or months, we're going to go through the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to look at this theme of hope through suffering. Because the early church knew a little something about suffering. They knew what it was like to be persecuted. They knew what it was like to be at odds with the culture. And yet their hope was unshakable, imperishable through it all. And so that is going to be our theme, and that's going to be our call as believers. Even in the 21st century, we have the same hope. We have the same peace that the early church had. And I hope this is a great remembrance to us to know who we are in Christ. So that the title of this first sermon is A Living Hope. Uh, it kind of sounds like a pre-prequel pre, to a Star Wars movie, maybe with some better writing. Too soon? No. Maybe I'm the only one. If you're older than uh, 30, you understand what I'm talking about. So before we get into our sermon, I want to talk about the importance of words. We say things every day. We use the language that God has given us, uh, but we don't really think about how our words come across. We many times may not even define the words we use all the time. Some people will say for intensive purposes. It's not actually true. It's for all intents and purposes. Things we just say, we don't even know what they mean. We just repeat what we hear from other people. And this is especially true of theological words. Words that hold great significance. That where you would talk to a lot of people in different religions, they have a concept of salvation. They have a concept of hope. They have a concept of grace. But, like, you know, in the immortal words of Meninga Mentoya, I don't really think that means what you think it means. I think that they're saying words that have a meaning to them, but we need to be clear on what the Bible says about those terms. And so one of the first things we do in our, our study, uh, whenever we're going through any passage, and we do this habitually every week in our small groups, is we look at words first. What words are repeated? What words need to be defined? What words need to be clarified? Because words matter. Uh, the use of words matter. And not in some PC, you know, politically correct, sensitive kind of way where we, we fear words. But we want to make sure as Christians that when we speak, when we explain the gospel, when we explain scripture, that we're clear. And that other people who are listening to us are clear on what we mean. And so we need to understand that first, biblically. A verse that we spent a lot of time on last week when we were in James, we spent the entire night talking about the tongue and the power of, of words. James spends a lot of time talking about our words and how they have an effect. We bless and we curse. They build up and they, and they destroy. Uh, Proverbs 18-21 is one we spent some time on in our group, and I think it's uh, helpful to set this, this foundation for it. So Proverbs 18-21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruits. It's a pretty strong statement that death and life are in the power of the tongue. What does that mean? It means that the gospel, the means for salvation, the good news that Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again, God chose to use our words. He chose to use preaching. He chose to use witnessing. He chose to use evangelizing to bring people from death to life. Our words have power. But for false prophets, for false gospels, they have the power to destroy, to lead people astray. Many of the false prophets out there are using the exact same words. And the false religions out there are using the exact same words. And people who are not rooted 
in these theological concepts who don't understand Scripture are getting led astray. And it's not new to us. Paul and the other New Testament writers warned us, watch out for the false prophets. Before the time of Christ, the prophets were proclaiming, stop listening to these people who are promising you one thing. They don't speak for the Lord. So we need to be clear on our words and our word choices and what these words mean. So the first thing we always do is define our terms. Because sometimes you're saying the same thing and it means something different. It really depends on what the meaning of is is, right? If you're not old enough to remember that, you can Google it. It's one of the lower times in our country's history. But, you know, the way we use our words and what they mean are so important. And every time a biblical writer uses a term, it is not by accident. Every time we come across a word in scripture, it's not used flippantly. It is used intentionally. And Peter, right here in this first chapter, gives us one of the greatest, strongest, most grand descriptions of the gospel anywhere in scripture. And it's beautiful. And it's amazing. And there's so many weighty theological concepts. So we're going to spend some time in that. And what we're going to do this morning is do a bit of a word study. Because this is one of those passages that is one long sentence in the Greek. But if we take our time and we go through word by word, each one has significance and each one builds on each other. And I want you to see that because these things are important. How we view this concept of salvation. How we view what it means to have hope and what a living hope actually is. Let's look at our text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And then we're going to pray and walk back through it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last Time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have seen him, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. This is so beautiful and so awesome that our God and Father, his grand plan found its climax in his son, and he did it for us. How humbling it is to know that the God of the universe loved us enough to die, loved us enough to bring us out of the dead with him, and loved us enough to bring him into his family with an inheritance that only he deserves. We are not worthy of that love and that grace, but we are so thankful for it. Lord, I just pray that this morning this would be an encouragement, this would be a joyous reminder and celebration of what Christ has done and who we are if we trust in him. And our faith is not based 
on our work but his. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Just pray that this text is clear this morning. We pray that my fumblings will not get in the way and that you use this as a time to build and edify and encourage the body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So first things first, um, Peter does not waste any time. Right after his introduction, he jumps right in. Um, He's getting into the essentials. I mean, it fits right with what we know about Peter, right? There's no hesitation in Peter. God took this shoot-ready-aim guy and made him this great fisher of men who, just as impetuous as he was before to stick his foot in his mouth, now he will boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ. And he gets right into it. He jumps right in the deep end. Or is it the shallow end? Um, I love this quote. Uh, by an early church father, Gregory the Great. He says that scripture is like a river, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. C.S. Lewis and other people have used this. What that quote is essentially saying is that the gospel is deep and it is vast and it is rich. And you can study all of your life and go layer after layer and still discover something new every time but it's also shallow and gentle so that the frail lamb can wade through quietly. C.S. Lewis mentions the, the lamb as a child, that the gospel is so deep that it will drown an elephant, but a child can play in its shallows. I think that is so beautiful that the truth of what Christ has done is complex and we can agonize over every word, but yet it is simple enough that the little children come to him and say, I want to be with my daddy. I want to be in my father's house. And that is this beautiful tension of these simple truths that confound the most brilliant of minds. And so we're going to start here in basic concepts We're going to try to get somewhat deep. I don't want to drown anyone, but I want you uh, to kind of bask in the depths of this passage. So first things first, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First thing we do in our James study or any Bible study, we look at what words are repeated. But we see something. Who's doing the action here? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's repeated? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. The Father is the first cause. It is his work. Peter, right out of the gate, is saying, blessed be the Father. Not you because you got it all together, but blessed be the Father because he's merciful. Because he loves us. Because he caused us to be born again. It is his mercy. This word, born again. It's a term in Greek that literally means to be to be generated again, to be begat once again. It is literally to be born again. It's a term that we kind of throw around. But do we really think about and meditate on what it means to be born again? So let's think about it for a moment. What does it mean to be born the first time? Well, the first time it's there's some pain involved. There's some discomfort involved. As a baby, you don't really choose where you go. You don't, a little bit, sorry. I can't speak from experience. I've heard. Um, 
So as a baby, you're, you're not choosing where you're born or what color your eyes are, what color your hair is. And when you're born, you are completely dependent on your parents. But you were born into a family. You were born taking on the characteristics of those who gave birth to you. And so when we are born again, it's a similar process. If we don't really control our eye color and our hair color or our family characteristics. But once we are born again, we take on some of those characteristics and we are born into a new family. And there is some pain involved for us because we have to die. Like a fruit that falls off of a tree and actually dies, it separates itself from its life force. It must do that for the seed to get to the ground to create new life. So this being born again, something has to die before life can happen again. And we need to understand that. Being born again is not turning over a new leaf. It is turning a new life. It is the dead rising. And that's why uh, Peter says here that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is important that Jesus died. Because unless Jesus died... There would be no resurrection. There would be no death to sin. Unless we die with him, there is no being born again. So this is very important. All of these words are here intentionally. So we must die to our sin, to our flesh, to the sins of Adam that are taken along with us so that we can be resurrected again with Christ. I mean, this is what Jesus told Nicodemus. Right in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is saying, I know that you're a teacher from God. He's asking him all these questions about the kingdom. And Jesus said, you must be born again. So Nicodemus automatically goes to, well, how am I going to come back out of my mother's womb again? And how does this, this work? So Jesus fundamentally early on in his ministry says, you must be born again. You must be born of heaven. You must be born of the spirit. Or nothing else is possible. Don't call me a good teacher without being born again into my family. The uh, Great Awakening preacher George Whitfield was famous for saying one thing over and over and over and over again. And hundreds of thousands of people heard him preach and tens of thousands came to Christ. What did he say over and over and over again? You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. This is so important. Now, a lot of times when we get into our small group studies, we get into more of the technical theological terms. A term like regeneration. Why do you guys have to come up with these scientific terms? Uh, This is literally what this this word means. It means to, to be generated again, to be born again. Regeneration, that's what that means. It simply means born again. It is the beginning of the salvation process in our lives. So this is the groundwork. You must be born again first. Step one. To what? To a living hope. What is a living hope? What is hope? If you open up Webster's Dictionary, hope, according to Webster, is to want something to happen or to be true and to think that it could happen or be true. So it's a hope of something that you're wishing and maybe it might be true. But remember, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, that hope is just like faith. Hope is only as valuable as its object. Faith, I can have faith that that chair is going to get up and, and fly, but my faith is not grounded because I'm putting my faith in something that cannot deliver. Our hope is the same thing. 
Unless our hope is in something that can fulfill and give us a reason for that hope, our hope is unfounded. Our hope is hopeless. And so our hope is in what Peter just said before. Our living hope is in that Christ is living. Our hope is that he has risen from the dead. And our hope is in something sure and unshakable. That's what our hope is. It's not a hope without basis. And Peter is able to speak about this living hope because Peter saw him living. This is the guy who walked with him day after day. This is the guy who denied him when he was about to be crucified. This is the guy who, when Jesus comes out of the tomb, says, where is Peter? Ask for him by name. He knows what kind of a scoundrel he is, but he loves him anyway. And Peter walks around with the living Lord. So Peter is saying, I have a living hope. We have a living hope. And like he tells us later on in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter's saying, I've seen him. I know our hope is living because I walk with him and I talked with him. Christianity is not a set of propositions, but a person. Hope is not based on our circumstances, but on Christ. Jesus lives, so we live. Our hope is in Christ who lives. And our living hope is through the resurrection. That's why for us the the resurrection is more relevant than just Easter. You know, people ask when we prepare sermons, well, are you going to talk about the, the cross on Easter? We talk about the cross every week. Why wouldn't we? It changes everything. Everything changed because of the resurrection. Everything changes. Everything we teach, everything we do. If indeed we were dead and we rose again with Christ, nothing can ever be the same. So for the Christian, that's why the cross is a non-negotiable. There are other things we may disagree on. But if we don't have the cross in common, if Christ is not both man and God, if he did not die and he did not rise again and we don't die with him and we don't rise again, then you're not a Christian. You might as well follow some other religion and try to work your way to heaven. This is our living hope. And it's real because it comes out of the hope of new life. It comes out of Christ in his new life. Is this your hope? Is this what you trust in? Is this what you find comfort in? Is this where you find your identity in that Christ rose again and I rose with him? Because anything else is going to let you down. Anything else, like we'll see in a moment, is perishable. It's fading. I think it's just amazing that when the father raised the son from the dead, they didn't He didn't leave us there. He rose us again with him. To be born again to a living hope. I mean, how amazing is that? That we who trust in Christ for our salvation were to be counted with him. To be raised again with him. To what? Verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you are part of this living hope through the resurrection of Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable to for the purpose of we are raised for the the purpose of an imperishable inheritance inheritance what do we know about inheritances inheritances are given freely 
usually to a family member, and customarily after death. See any parallels here? It's meant to evoke these ideas in our minds of an inheritance. My relative passed and they left something of theirs for me. And when you're born into a family, you have a share in that inheritance. So when you were born again into a new family, you now have a share of that inheritance. And so for us, in a very consumer-based culture, we automatically think money. Well, how much do I get? How much did they leave me? Jesus did tell us there will be treasures in heaven. We don't know what they look like. Probably guarantee they won't be gold coins. But our treasures are something that are imperishable, unfading. Uh, last week, Justin talked about there being exiles, how Israel was, was cast out of Egypt for a while and they wandered before getting to their promised land. Well, there is a promise for us as well as exiles away from our home. There is a new Canaan for us. There is a new Jerusalem, a new heavens and the earth, and we are wandering for a time. But part of our inheritance is a land that Christ will reign in forever and we will reign with him. We sung those words earlier. And when you belong to a family, like we mentioned about first birth, when you're born again, you inherit some of those family's traits. You inherit characteristics. You inherit your father's disposition. Christ, your brother's love. Holy Spirit's wisdom. Being born into the family of God, you inherit those characteristics. And that inheritance is much more valuable than anything you can put on paper. Those are the things that we forget about, that we're born into this family and this grand inheritance. And that's what sets us apart from the world. Because our inheritance is our holiness, lived out in this life, worthy of life in the next. So we live in this life with this inheritance, knowing that it is ours, knowing that it, we are children of an eternal kingdom that is imperishable, unfading, and it is kept for us in heaven. Kept means it is already there. doesn't mean it has to be earned by us. It is already earned by Christ on the cross. It is kept. Our inheritance is sure. We possess it now, even though we don't hold it in its fullness. It is ours So we experience some of the blessings and the benefits of this inheritance. But we look forward to, as Peter says, uh, when we will see it in its fullness. And we will experience it in its fullness. So our heavenly inheritance is now ours. It is kept for us in heaven. Verse 5, by God's power. It's interesting that this word guard... It's a military term. It could also mean shielded. It has kind of uh, two implications. Usually when we think of uh, being guarded, it means that someone is protecting something. And that is one of the uh, definitions. It means to protect from danger. Uh, But it also means to prevent from escaping. So which version of that word do you think is being used here? I think it's both. And what is he talking about? And who by God's power being guarded through faith? What's being guarded? Us or the inheritance? Again, I think it's it's both. That is being guarded, meaning protected from danger, but also kept from escaping. Because God knows that if it was up to us, 
We would deny him just like Peter. We would turn down this inheritance in exchange for something temporary and for something worldly. But it is guarded by God's power. It is guarded from the outside, from the wickedness. There is neither depth nor, nor height, neither angels nor demons that can separate us from the love of God. We are protected that way. But we're also protected against ourselves. We're guarded against our own sin and our own desire to run, prone to wander from God. And you're guarded through faith. So wait, verse 5, kind of interesting, right? Maybe you haven't thought about this, but I had all week to think about it, so don't, don't feel bad. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith? Wait, is it God's power or is it my faith? Isn't it amazing how this works together? That it is no less outside of God's control, but it is no less our faith. That in some cosmic mystery that God holds us together by his power, but yet we truly believe in him by our faith. And these two things work together. Again, this is a both. Is it God's power? Is it our faith? And they come together in this great marriage. Paul kind of says the same thing. I want you to turn to Romans 5. We read this last week before Justin's sermon, but I want us to come back and I want us to look at it for just a moment. Because this is such a powerful passage, and this is one of those that, that we could read every week, and we could study every week, and it would still blow our minds. Romans chapter 5, we're gonna, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. But I want you to see how Paul makes the same connections here that, that Peter is making. One of the beautiful things about reading scripture is that when you read Peter, you get Peter's personality. When you read Paul, you get Paul's personality. When you read James, you get James' personality. But you get the Holy Spirit speaking in union between all of them. They may word things differently, but they're saying the exact same thing. This is the gospel that we are to be rooted in. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts where Peter starts. God the Father, God the Son, peace in Christ. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith. Peter's got the same thing here. We are, we are justified by faith, work of the Father, but our access is through our faith, our involvement into this grace. The grace of the Father and the Son in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I wish I could go through all the passages that talk about the hope of the glory of God, but obviously we can't. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait, Paul's another crazy one. He wants us to rejoice in our sufferings. Watch this. Watch his, his train of thought here. He's saying the same thing Peter's saying. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul follows the same pattern of suffering to hope. He's of the same mind as Peter. Suffering is for a little while. It is temporary. But hope is the ultimate result if indeed our faith is in Christ and the Spirit dwells within us and it will turn to the maturity of 
our souls. So going back to our passage in, in Peter, that we are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now this word salvation, this is one we really got to spend some time on. So if you've been sleeping so far, lean in here because this is where we, this is where we really, those of you who are really smiling, we're almost nodding off, sorry. Salvation is one of those words that every religion has some kind of concept of. And you will speak, if you stop 10 people on the street and ask them, what is salvation? You'd probably get 10 different answers. Nine and a half of them would not be biblical. And salvation, we need to understand from the biblical concept. And so this word for salvation is interesting. It's, it's one of the rare words in Greek where it is used in every tense of the Greek language. What do we mean by that? That means that salvation is spoken of as completed in the past, ongoing in the present, and yet to come in the future. Many times when we think about salvation, we think of it as static. And if you don't know what that means, it just means lifeless. It only has one aspect, but our salvation is dynamic, meaning when we read scripture, we see that salvation was planned by the Father before the foundation of the earth. And that salvation is not just the moment when you say a, a prayer, but it is a process. Many of you have heard me give this analogy, but I'm going to give it again because every time I do, it seems helpful. You heard the uh, boat analogy from me? Well, you're going to hear it again because some of you haven't. So we've all heard the little platitude that, you know, I was drowning and Christ reached down and pulled me out. Sort of like that, but you're dead. You're on the bottom of the ocean, decaying. And so salvation has three aspects. So when Christ pulls you from the depths, from death itself and resurrects you to himself, you have been saved. But now you're in a boat. If you've ever been in a boat in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of a storm, it is rocky. And we know that the storms keep coming. So while you have been saved, you're in the boat with, with Christ, the waves are still crashing, and the thunder is still rattling, and the lightning is still flashing on your way to shore. Every foot you get closer to shore, you are being saved, and you are closer to your final destination. And one day, when the storms have ceased and the boat reaches its shore, you will be saved completely. So let me ask you, are we saved, are we being saved, or will we be saved? The answer is yes. In the past, our purchased salvation is done by Christ on the cross, from death to life, regeneration, salvation accomplished. In the present, our growth in life is something that is protected. It is guarded by God. While we are on this earth, it is protected. Our sanctification, growing in holiness. Justin talked about this last week. And in the future, this full salvation, fully received, fully perfected, is our glorification. Where we are like Christ. We are not Christ. We are not God's. Don't hear me say that. But we inherit a body like his, raised from the dead, without decay, that is imperishable. So our past salvation is accomplished by Christ on the cross. 
finished, done. Our current salvation is guarded by the Father so that nothing can happen to it. Our future salvation will one day be possessed fully when Christ comes again and we take on his nature. Past, present, and future, our salvation is held together by Christ and we rest in him. And that is a beautiful salvation. Don't belittle salvation as some prayer that happened in some emotional experience. This is the work of God throughout eternity with the cooperation of the Son by the power of the Spirit held together for eternity. Salvation is amazing. And it is dynamic. And it is beautiful. And it is ready. Still in verse 5. Through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It is ready doesn't require anything else it is ready right now it is kept by God like we said to be revealed in the last time the day of the Lord we will see it in its fullness salvation does not require your effort to make it better there is nothing you can add to what God has done it is ready it is accomplished in Christ so we spent a lot of time in those first few verses we're going to fly through these next ones in this what is this This salvation, we rejoice in everything we just learned. We rejoice in being born again. We rejoice in the living hope. We rejoice in the resurrection of Christ. We rejoice in our inheritance. We rejoice that it is guarded by God's power. We rejoice that our uh, faith has brought us to salvation. It is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. All that being said, know the truth first. Because right now, some of us feel like that. When we scream and say we have these trials and we are grieved by them. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. A little while. No, in the middle of trials, they do not feel like a little while. But those words are accurate. It's just a little while. The trials do not last forever. When we went through the Psalms, we know there is mourning, but then joy comes in the morning. But our hope is in Christ. Our hope is living. When the world despairs, we delight. When the world is hopeless, we are hopeful because of Christ. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that faith tested, purified, and found true. He compares it to gold. What does that have to do with gold? Many of you have heard this, but you can hear it again. How do you get 10 karat gold to 14 karat? How do you get 14 karat to 18 and to 20 and to 24? You turn up the heat. Because as the heat goes up, the impurities are burned out. This refinement process, fire increases purity by removing combustible materials that weaken the gold. The same is true for us. The trials are meant to melt away the things that weaken our faith. First and foremost, we have to know who we are. We have to know that we are born to a living hope. And then we have to know that trials are for the purpose of our faith. It's a good thing. James starts out his letter like this. And in his language, our trials coming out the other end, tested by the fire, justifies us. It proves what Christ has done. 
that as the heat is turned up, we come out the other side shining. We can all look at times in our lives. I know so many times in my life, I wondered, what is this thing that I'm going through? Why am I struggling right now? And it was only when coming to the Lord in faith, realizing that I was putting my trust in something else. And he had to burn that out of my life. Don't resist the trials of the Lord. Lean into him. Those trials will help us to rely on him. Those things in our life which, which would seem, seem painful for a little while are for our good. He disciplines those he loves. It's a beautiful thing for God to want to turn us from 10 carat to 14 carat. Because just like in their time and in ours, gold is a standard. Gold is valuable. But the amazing thing is what's most valuable to God is not gold. It is tested faith. The most valuable commodity to our God is a shining faith that rests in the, in the hope of the resurrection. That is what our God values more than anything else. That is what he is doing in us. Purifying us. And tested genuine faith results in praise and glory and honor. How amazing is that? It doesn't value our deeds doesn't value our sacrifices or our religious convictions, but our faith. Our faith that drives everything else. So then when we do deeds, when we give offerings, when we serve, it is out of a heart that loves the Lord, and it is more valuable than anything we could ever give. One of the best commentaries I read in First Peter is by Edmund Clowney. I love this phrase he uses that we are trophies of God's grace. We are the shining example of what God's grace looks like. Next week, we're going to get into uh, the next several verses. And in verse 12, it says, But the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels long to look. You know, you know what amazes angels? You know what blows the mind of an angel? Is that dead people now shimmer like gold. They get to see God's grace on display in us. Trophies, monuments to God's work of salvation. That is just incredible. To present it to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, what does this mean? When is Jesus revealed? This is just another word for the day of the Lord. It is the the revealing of Christ. When he comes again in his glory. Remember we, we talked about salvation accomplished. Salvation going on and salvation that will be fully realized. So when it is revealed, uh, excuse me, in honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, is when he comes again, it will be fully realized. It will be fully possessed. This faith that has been put through the fire will be on display and it will glorify God and all the nations will drop to their knees because of what he's done in us. Incredible. We're not going to spend time on verses 8 and 9 this week. These are kind of hinged verses. I want to just uh, touch on them briefly. We're going to look at them next week. Verses 8 and 9 say, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now this makes more sense now that we've talked about salvation. So wait a second. 
do I have to have faith to have salvation? Do I have to earn it? Well, if we understand salvation as dynamic, that our salvation begins in our regeneration, begins with being born again, it is, it is growing, it is building in our sanctification as we grow in holiness, but one day we will obtain the full salvation of our souls. It will be perfect as Christ is perfect. But we share in God's glory now, and we're going to get into that next week, a glimmer of the things that are to come. A living hope. Because through trials, our tested faith results in joy, in glory, in rejoicing, in the salvation of our souls. So how do we conclude this morning? I just want to tell you, after looking at this, and I could have spent five weeks on this, and so I had to try to rush through it. The first thing I want to tell you is just as God guards our salvation, guard the gospel. Hear me when I say guard the gospel. Make sure the gospel that we believe and we teach, make sure the words that we use are in line with Scripture. Make sure that we explain salvation the way Peter explains it. Make sure we rejoice in the things that Peter rejoices in. Make sure that our gospel is not defiled by the world. Make sure that we're not believing false gospels that want to exalt man. There are many self-serving gospels today. There are many gospels that want to make God petty and small and man great and kind. Our God, before the world was created, had this plan for salvation. He has done the most amazing thing that has ever happened, ever, by raising his son from the dead and then raising millions of people from the dead through faith, by his power. That is our gospel. And so guard the gospel. Second thing, when we are facing suffering, trials, persecution, remind yourself of where your hope is. Remind each other. You know what Christian encouragement and Christian counseling looks like? We remind ourselves of what Christ accomplished. Remind ourselves of who we are in him. Remind ourselves of what our identity is. Peter reminds us so we can remind one another. We need to understand the gospel. We need to guard it and we need to remind ourselves of it. Because our hope is in Christ. He is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. I'm going to close with this quote uh, from Edmund Clowney again. I love this and I think this is a perfect way to wrap this up. He says, our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, God and Father. Bless your name. You are worthy of all praise and honor. Because your great plan of salvation included us. Your work throughout all history, what you sent your son to do, did not leave us where we deserve to be. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to remind ourselves, to remind each other of who we are in Christ. 
that through our faith, our salvation is guarded by your strong hand and nothing can rip us out of your hand. And that should be the greatest hope we can ever have. If you are here this morning and you don't know that hope, you must be born again. You must die to the world and die to yourself to live a life eternal with an inheritance that is imperishable and unshakable. And let us be people who never stop to proclaim that message and encourage one another in that. I pray in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.